Therein it differs from justification. Justification is a single act of grace. Sanctification is a continued work of grace. The one is complete, the other progressive. Some do not like the term progressive sanctification, but the thing itself is clearly taught in Scripture. Every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. John 15:2. I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and all judgment. Philippians 1, 9 that you may grow up in him in all things. Ephesians 4.15 is an exhortation thereto. 8. It is perverted by those who fail to accord the example of Christ is a proper place. Few indeed have maintained an even keel on this important matter. If the Socinians have made the exemplary life of Christ to be the whole end of the incarnation, others have so stressed his atoning death as to reduce his model walk to comparative insignificance. While the pulpit must make it clear that the main and chief reason why the Son of God became a flesh was in order that he might honor God in rendering to the law a perfect satisfaction on behalf of his people. Yet it should also make equally plain that a prominent design and important end of Christ's incarnation was to set before his people a pattern of holiness for their emulation. Thus declares the scripture, He hath left us an example that we should follow his steps. 1 Peter 2.21 And that example imperatively obligates believers unto its imitation. If some have unduly pressed the example of Christ upon believers, others have woefully failed to press it on believers. Because it has no place in the justification of a sinner, it is a serious mistake to suppose it exerts no influence upon the sanctification of a saint. The very name Christian intimates that there is an intimate relation between Christ and the believer. It signifies an anointed one, that he has been endued with a measure of that divine unction which his master received without measure. John 3.34 And as Flavel the Puritan pointed out, believers are called fellows or co-partners Psalm 45, 7, of Christ, from their participation with him of the same Spirit. God giveth the same Spirit unto us, which he most plentifully poured out upon Christ. Now where the same Spirit and principle is, there the same fruits and operations must be produced according to the proportions and the measures of the Spirit of grace communicated. Its nature also is assimilating and changeth those in whom it is into the same image with Christ, their heavenly head. Second Corinthians 3.18 Again, believers are denominated Christians because they are disciples of Christ. 
Matthew 28:19 margin Acts 11:26 that is learners and followers of his and therefore it is a misuse of terms to designate a man a Christian who is not sincerely endeavoring to mortify and forsake whatever is contrary to his character to justify his name he must be Christ like Though the perfect life of Christ must not be exalted to the exclusion of his atoning death, neither must it be omitted as the believer's model. If it be true that no attempt to imitate Christ can obtain a sinner's acceptance with God, it is equally true that the emulating of him is imperatively necessary and absolutely essential in order to the saints' preservation and final salvation. Every man is bound to the imitation of Christ under penalty of forfeiting his claim to Christ. The necessity of this imitation convincingly appears from the established order of salvation, which is fixed and unalterable. Now conformity to Christ is the established method in which God will bring many souls to glory. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Romans 8:29. The same God who hath predestinated men to salvation hath in order thereto predestinated them unto conformity to Christ. And this order of heaven is never to be reversed. We may as well think to be saved without Christ as to be saved without conformity to Christ. John Flavel In Christ God has set before his people that standard of moral excellence which he requires them to aim and strive after. In his life we behold a glorious representation in our own nature of the walk of obedience which he demands of us. Christ conformed himself to us by his abasing incarnation. How reasonable, therefore, is it that we should conform ourselves to him in the way of obedience and sanctification. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, 5 He came as near to us as was possible for him to do. How reasonable then is it that we should endeavor to come as near as it is possible for us to do. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. If even Christ please not himself, Romans 15.3, how reasonable is it that we should be required to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him, Matthew 16.24, for without so doing we cannot be his disciples, Luke 15.27. If we are to be conformed to Christ in glory, how necessary that we first be conformed to him in holiness. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself so to walk even as he walked, 1 John 2.6. Let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Second Timothy two nineteen. Let him either put on the life of Christ or drop 
the man of Christ. Chapter 8, Its Safeguards There may be some who will at once take exception to the employment of this term in such a connection, affirming that the truth of God requires no safeguarding at the hands of those called by him to expound it, that their business is to faithfully preach the same and leave results entirely to its author. We fully agree that God's eternal truth stands in no need of any carnal assistance from us, either in the way of dressing it up to render it more attractive or toning down to make it less offensive. Yea, we heartily subscribe to the Apostles' dictum that we can do nothing against the truth but for the truth. 2 Corinthians 13, 8 God overrules the opposition of those who hate it and makes the wrath of his enemies to praise him. Nevertheless, in view of such passages as Mark 4.33, John 16.12, 1 Corinthians 3.2, Hebrews 5.12, it is clear that our presentation of the truth needs to be regulated by the condition of those to whom it is ministered. Moreover, this raises the question, what is faithfully presenting the truth? Are there not other modifying adverbs which are not to be omitted? The truth should not only be preached faithfully, but wisely, proportionately, seasonably as well. There is a zeal which is not according to knowledge, nor tempered by wisdom. There is an unbalanced presentation of the truth which accomplishes more harm than good. We read of the present truth, 2 Peter 1.12, and of a word in due season, Proverbs 15.23, and compare Isaiah 54, which implies there is such a thing as speaking unseasonably, even though it be the truth itself which is spoken and that faithfully. What is a word in season? Is it not a timely and pertinent one, a message suited to the conditions, circumstances, and needs of the persons addressed? In his wisdom and goodness, God has provided cordials for the faint and comfort for those who mourn, as he has also given exhortations to the slothful, admonitions to the careless, solemn warnings to the reckless, and fearful threatenings to those who are defiant. Discrimination needs to be used in our appropriation and application of the scriptures as it would be cruel to quote terrifying passages to one who is already mourning over his sins, so it would be wrong to press the promises of divine preservation upon a professing Christian who is living a carnal and worldly life. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew 26:41. Those words furnish an illustration of a word in due season. The disciples, not Peter only, had boasted, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. They were self-confident and temporarily blind to their own instability. Their Lord therefore bade them guard against self-reliance and seek grace from above, for though they were quite sincere in their avowal, 
Yet were they much too feeble to resist Satan's attacks in their own strength. They thought themselves immune from such a horrible sin as denying their master, but instead of bolstering them up in their sense of security, he warned them of their danger. Another example of a seasonable word is the Apostle's exhortation to the one who claims that he standeth by faith, namely, Be not high-minded, but fear, for if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on those that fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise, thou also shalt be cut off. Romans 11:20 and 22. But it is rather those safeguards by which God himself has hedged about the subject of the everlasting security of his people that we would now particularly consider those defenses which are designed to shut out unholy trespassers from this garden of delight or to change the figure, those descriptions of character and conduct, which serve to make known the particular persons to whom alone his promises belong. In the preceding section we dwelt at some length on how this blessed doctrine is misrepresented by Arminians and perverted by antinomians. To use the term employed by an apostle, it has been grievously rest torn from its setting, disproportionately contorted, divorced from its qualifying terms, detached from the necessary means by which it is attained, applied unto those to whom it does not belong. Hence our present object is to direct attention unto some of the principal bulwarks by which this precious truth is protected and which must be duly emphasized and continually pressed by the servants of God if it is to be portrayed in its true perspective and if souls are not to be fatally misled. Only thus shall we faithfully present this truth. 1. By insisting that it is the preservation of saints and not everyone who deems himself a Christian, it is of deep importance to define clearly and sharply the character of those who are divinely assured of being preserved unto the heavenly kingdom, that God be not dishonored, his truth falsified, and souls deceived. He preserveth the souls of his saints. Psalm 87.10 but of none others. It is so easy to appropriate or misappropriate such a promise as, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Psalm 73:24. But before so doing, honesty requires that I ascertain whether the experiences of the one described in the context are those of mine. Asaph confesses to being envious at the prosperity of the wicked, verses 3 and 12, until he felt he had cleansed his own heart and hands in vain, verse 13. But he checks himself, tender, lest by such murmurings he should 
stumble God's children, verse 15, recording how his heart was grieved and his conscience pricked at giving way to such foolish repinings until he owned unto God, I was as a beast before thee, verse 22. The recollection of God's gracious forbearance, verse 23, moved him to say, It is good for me to draw near to God, verse 28. When I can find such marks in myself as the psalmist had, such graces operating in my heart as did in his, then, but not before, am I warranted in comforting myself as he did, if I challenge the utterances of my mouth as to whether or no they are likely to offend God's little ones, if I make a conscience of envying the prosperity of the wicked and mourn over it, if I am deeply humbled thereby if I realize my steps had well nigh slipped verse 2 and that it was a long suffering God who had holden me by my right hand alone preserving me from apostasy if this sense of his sovereign goodness enables me to affirm whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. Verse 25. If all of this produces in me such a sense of my utter insufficiency as to own my flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart. Verse 26. Then am I justified in saying, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Yes, God preserveth the souls of his saints, but what avails that for me, unless I be one of them? Again, how many there are who eagerly grasp at those words of Christ concerning his sheep, who have only the vaguest idea of the ones whom he thus designates, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. John 10:27. The very fact that the verse opens with and requires us to ponder what immediately precedes, and because his flock is but a little one, Luke 12:32, it behooves each one who values his soul to spare no pains in seeking to ascertain whether he belongs to it. In the context, the Savior says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Observe diligently the three things which are here predicated of them. First, they hear Christ's voice. Now, to hear his voice means far more than to be acquainted with his words as they are recorded in Scripture, more than believing they are his words. When it was said unto Israel, the Lord will not hear you in that day, First Samuel 8.18. It signified that he would not heed their requests or grant their petitions. When God complained, when I spake, ye did not hear. It was not that they were physically deaf, but their hearts were steeled against him. As the remainder of the verse indicates, 
but did evil before mine eyes, and did choose that wherein I delighted not. Isaiah 65, 12. When God says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. Matthew 17:5. He is requiring something more of us than that we simply listen respectfully and believingly to what he says. He is demanding that we submit ourselves unreservedly to his authority, that we respond promptly to his orders, that we obey him. In Proverbs 8.33, hearing is contrasted from refusing. And in Hebrews 3.15 we read, If ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. When Christ declares of his flock, My sheep hear my voice, he signifies they heed it. They are not intractable, but responsive, doing what he bids. Second, he declares, and I know them, that is, with a knowledge of approbation. Third, and they follow me. Not the bent of the flesh, but the solicitations of Satan. Not the ways of the world, but the example which Christ has left them. First Peter 2.21 Of this it is said, They follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Revelation 14.4 But in order to follow Christ, self has to be denied and the cross taken up. Matthew 16:24. Only those who thus hear are known of Christ and who follow him shall never perish. 2. By insisting that no person has any warrant to derive comfort from the doctrine of divine security until he is sure that he possesses the character and conduct of a saint, this naturally grows out of the first point, though we have somewhat anticipated what should be said here. Not every one who bears the name of Christ will enter heaven, but only his sheep. It therefore follows that only those bearing the marks of such have any claim upon the promises made to that favored company. And the burden of proof always rests upon the one who affirms. If one answers some advertisement from an employer of labor for a skilled workman, he is required to give evidence of his qualifications by well-accredited testimonials. If a person puts in a claim to an estate, he must produce proof that he is a legitimate heir and satisfy the court of his bona fides. If a captain requires an additional hand for his ship, he demands that the applicant show his papers or give demonstration that he is a fully qualified seaman. Before I can procure a passport, I must produce my birth certificate, and one who avers himself a saint must authenticate his profession and evidence his new birth before he is entitled to be regarded as such. God's saints are distinguished from all other people, not only by what he has done for them, but also by what he has wrought in them. 
He set his heart upon them from all eternity, having loved them with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31, 3. And therefore they were blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ, chosen in him before the foundation of the world, predestinated unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, and accepted in the Beloved. Ephesians 1, 3-6. It is true that they fell in Adam and became guilty before God, but an all-sufficient Redeemer was provided for them, appointed to assume and discharge all their liabilities and make full reparation to the broken law on their behalf. It is also true that they are, by nature, the children of wrath, even as others, being born into this world, dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. But at the ordained hour, a miracle of grace is performed within them, so that they become new creatures in Christ Jesus. Second Corinthians 5.17 And their bodies are made the temple of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 6.19 Faith and holiness have been communicated to them, so that though they are still in the world, they are not of it. John 17:14. The saints are endowed with a new life, with a spiritual and supernatural principle or nature which affects their whole souls. So radical and transforming is the change wrought in them by this miracle of grace that it is described as a passing from death unto life. John 5:24. From the power of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Colossians 1:13. From having no hope and without God in the world to being made nigh by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2:12 and 13. From a state of alienation to one of reconciliation. Conciliation, Colossians 1:21, out of darkness into God's marvelous light, 1 Peter 2:9. Of them God says, "This people have I formed for myself; they shall show forth my praise." Isaiah 43:21. Obviously, such a tremendous change in their state and standing must effect a real and marked change in their character and conduct. From rebellion against God, they are brought unto subjection to Him, so that they throw down their weapons of opposition and yield to His scepter. From love of sin, they are turned to hate it, and from dread of God, they now delight in Him. Formerly, they thought only of gratifying self. Now, their deepest longing is to please Him who has shown them such amazing grace. The saints are those who enter into a solemn covenant with the Lord, unreservedly dedicating themselves unto Him, making His glory their paramount concern. Formerly, soldiers used to take an oath not to flinch from their colors, but faithfully to cleave to their leaders. This they called sacramentum militari, a military oath. 
such an oath lies upon every Christian. It is so essential to the being of a saint that they are described by this. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me. Psalm 55. We are not Christians till we have subscribed this covenant and that without any reservation. When we take upon us the profession of Christ's name, we enlist ourselves in his muster roll, and by it do promise that we will live and die with him in opposition to all his enemies. He will not entertain us till we resign up ourselves freely to his disposal, that there may be no disputing with his commands afterwards, but as one under his authority, go and come at his word. William Gurnall, 1660. 3. By insisting that perseverance is an imperative necessity, adherence to the truth no matter what opposition is encountered, living a life of faith in and upon God, despite all the antagonism of the flesh, steadfastly treading the path of obedience in face of the scoffs of the world, continuing to go forward along the highway of holiness, notwithstanding the hindrances of Satan and his emissaries is not optional but obligatory. It is according to the unalterable decree of God. No one can reach heaven except by going along the only way that reaches there. Christ endured the cross before he received the crown. It is according to the irreversible appointment of God. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 It is according to the established order of God, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience, the Greek word may be rendered perseverance, with equal propriety, inherit the promises. Hebrews 6.12 It is according to the design of the atonement. For Christ lived and died that he might purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Titus 2.14 Assurance of divine preservation no more renders less imperative the saint's own perseverance than God's informing Hezekiah he should live a further fifteen years, abolish the necessity of his eating and drinking, resting and sleeping as hitherto. The elect are as much chosen to intermediate sanctification on their way as they are to that ultimate glorification which crowns their journey's end, and there is no coming to the one but through the other, so that neither the value nor the necessity nor the practical value of good works is superseded by this glorious truth. It is impossible that either the Son of God, who came down from heaven to propose and make known his Father's will, or that the 
Spirit of God, speaking in the Scriptures and acting on the heart, should administer the least encouragement to negligence and unholiness of life. Therefore, that opinion that personal holiness is unnecessary to final glorification is in direct opposition to every dictate of reason, to every declaration of Scripture. A top lady. Alas, the attitude of multitudes of professing Christians is, Soul, thou hast much good laid up. Take thine ease. Luke twelve nineteen, And the doom of the fool will be theirs. Concerning the imperativeness of a perseverance, C.H. Spurgeon said in the introductory portion of his sermon on The Righteous Shall Hold On His Way, Job 17.9, The man who is righteous before God has a way of his own. It is not the way of the flesh nor the way of the world. It is a way marked out for him by the divine command in which he walks by faith. It is the king's highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. Only the ransomed of the Lord shall walk there, and these shall find it a path of separation from the world. Once entered upon the way of life, the pilgrim must persevere in it or perish. For thus saith the Lord, If any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him." Perseverance in the path of faith and holiness is a necessity of the Christian, for only he that endureth to the end shall be saved. It is in vain to spring up quickly like the seed that was sown on the rock, and then by and by to wither when the sun is up. That would but prove that such a plant has no root in itself, but... The trees of the Lord are full of sap, and they abide and continue and bring forth a fruit even in old age to show that the Lord is upright. There is a great difference between nominal Christianity and real Christianity, and this is generally seen in the failure of the one and the continuance of the other. Now the declaration of the text is that the truly righteous man shall hold on his way. He shall not go back. He shall not leap the hedges and wander to the right hand or to the left. He shall not lie down in idleness, neither shall he faint and cease to go upon his journey, but he shall hold on his way. It will frequently be very difficult for him to do so, but he will have such resolution, such a power of inward grace given him, that he will hold on his way with stern determination, as though he held on by his teeth, resolving never to let go. Perhaps he may not always travel with equal speed. It is not said that he shall hold on his pace, but he shall hold on his way. 
There are times when we run and are not weary, and anon when we walk and are thankful that we do not faint. Ay, and there are periods when we are glad to go on all fours and creep upwards with pain, but still we prove that the righteous shall hold on his way. Under all difficulties, the face of the man whom God has justified is steadfastly set towards Jerusalem, nor will he turn aside till his eyes shall see the king in his beauty. 4. By insisting on continuance in well-doing. It is not how a person commences, but how he ends, which is the all-important matter. We certainly do not believe that one who has been born of God can perish, but one of the marks of regeneration is its permanent effects, and therefore I must produce those permanent fruits if my profession is to be credited. Both scripture and observation testify to the fact that there are those who appear to run well for a season and then drop out of the race. Not only are their numbers induced to come forward and join the church under the high-pressure methods used by the professional evangelists who quickly return to their former manner of life, but there are not a few who enter upon a religious profession more soberly and wear longer. Some seem to be genuinely converted. They separate from ungodly companions, seek fellowship with God's people, manifest an earnest desire to know more of the Word, become quite intelligent in the Scriptures, and for a number of years give every outward sign of being Christians. But gradually their zeal abates or they are offended at some wrong done them, and ultimately they go right back again into the world. We read of a certain class who for a while believed, and in time of temptation fall away. Luke 8:13. There were those who followed Christ for a season, yet of them we read, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. John 6, 66. There have been many such in every age. All is not gold that glitters, and not every one who makes a promising start in the race reaches the goal. It is therefore incumbent upon us to take note of those passages which press upon us the necessity of continuance, for they constitute another of those safeguards which God has placed around the doctrine of the security of his saints. On a certain occasion, many believed on him, John 8:30. but so far from Christ assuring them that heaven was now their settled portion, we are told, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Verse 31. Unless we abide in subjection to Christ, unless we walk in obedience to Him unto the end of our earthly course, we are but disciples in name and semblance. 
We read of certain men who came to Antioch and spake unto the Grecians there, preaching the Lord Jesus. The power of God accompanied them and richly blessed their efforts, for the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great multitude believed and turned unto the Lord. Acts 11:20 and 21. Tidings of this reached the church at Jerusalem, and mark well their response. They sent Barnabas to them, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad, and exhorted them all that, with fatalistic hyper-Calvinists, who argue that, since God has begun a good work in them, all would be well, that the Holy Spirit will care for, instruct, and guard them, whether or no they be furnished with ministerial nurses and teachers. Instead, he recognized and discharged his own Christian responsibility, dealt with them as accountable agents, addressed to them suitable exhortations, pressed upon them the indispensable duty of their cleaving to the Lord. Alas, that there are so few like Barnabas today. At a later date, we find that Barnabas returned to Antioch accompanied by Paul, and while there they were engaged in confirming the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith. Chapter 14, verse 22. How far were they from believing in a mechanical salvation, reasoning that if these people had been genuinely converted, they would necessarily continue in the faith. Writing to the Corinthians, the apostle reminded them of the gospel he had preached unto them, and which they had received, yet failing not to add, by which also ye are saved, if ye hold fast that which I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 2. In like manner, he reminded the Colossians that they were reconciled to God and would be preserved unblameable and unreprovable. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 23. There are those who dare to say there is no if about it, but such people are taking direct issue with holy writ. Even when writing to a minister of the gospel, his own son in the faith, Paul hesitated not to exhort him, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, adding, For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself from apostasy and them that hear thee. 1 Timothy 4, 6 To the Hebrews he said, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Chapter 3, verse 6. And again, for we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. First Timothy three fifteen. How dishonestly has the word of God been handled by many? Such passages as these are never heard from many pulpits, 
from one year's end to another. It is much to be feared that many pastors of Calvinistic churches are afraid to quote such verses, lest their people should charge them with Arminianism. Such will yet have to face the divine indictment. Ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law or word. Malachi 2, 9. We find precisely the same thing in the writings of another apostle. James, though addressing those whom he terms my beloved brethren, calls upon his readers, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any one be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was, that is, nothing but a superficial and fleeting effect is produced upon him. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.